So we come this morning, uh, continuing in the series in the book of Judges, we come to the story of Gideon. Now the story of Gideon actually spans three chapters, chapters 6 through 8 in the book of Judges. But I'm not going to read three chapters. So we're going to read this morning chapter 7, verses 1 to 18, really the height of the Gideon story. This is found on page 206 in the Pew Bible. That is Judges 7, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put 
trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So this story of Gideon, as we consider it, it is one of the more famous stories in the book of Judges. It's pretty well known that Gideon is a man who lacks faith and trust in the Lord. And so it does bring about some questions as we study this story. Why should we trust in the Lord? What, what does it mean to trust in the Lord? And trusting in the Lord is, is something that none of us do perfectly. We all have times of great trust in the Lord, but we all also have times of great doubt and fear. In her book titled Holding On to Hope, author Nancy Guthrie recounts the experience of losing her infant daughter named Hope. And in it she writes this, we had hope for 199 days. We loved her. We enjoyed her richly and shared her with everyone we could. We held her during seizures. Then we let her go. The day after we buried Hope, my husband said to me, You know, I think we expected our faith to make this hurt less, but it doesn't. Our faith gave us an incredible amount of strength and encouragement while we had Hope. And we were comforted by the knowledge that she's in heaven. Our faith keeps us from being swallowed by despair, but I don't think it makes our loss hurt any less. And she goes on to say, God allows good and bad into our lives, and we can trust him with both. Trusting God when the miracle does not come, when the urgent prayer does not get an answer, when there's only dark, this is the kind of faith God values most of all. And she concludes, I believe that the purpose of hope's short life in my life, was and is to glorify God. Trusting in God means keeping your faith and belief in his sovereignty, even when you don't understand why things are happening, even in pain and suffering. Trusting that God is in control, that God is good, and that he can work all things for good. That's even our pain and suffering. God can use anything and work it for good. God even uses us. Inadequate, weak, and often unfaithful people for his own good purposes. And so we can always trust in God and his word, even when we don't see how or we don't understand why. And so this morning we see three reasons why we can always trust in God and his word. The first is because God uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. Second, God is glorified in everything that he does. And the third, God works in the hearts of his people to bring about trust. And so at the end of the story of Deborah, which you heard last week, at the end of Judges chapter 5, we are told that the land had rest 40 years. But although it's not explicitly stated, Deborah dies. No matter how good and faithful a leader Deborah was, she's a sinner. And therefore, she dies, and the cycle of the judges continues. And so the story of Gideon actually begins in chapter 6, verse 1. So I'll go through this first. In, in chapter 6, verse 1, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, restarting that cycle of the judges. And so then God brings his judgment upon them. 
the punishment for their sin, he once again hands them over to an enemy, this time to Midian. And it lasts for seven years. And so it says the Midians, Midianites overpowered Israel. And that the people of Israel had to move into mountains and caves and strongholds. But whenever they would plant crops, the, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, this kind of force army that formed against them, they would steal. They would take everything. They took their produce, their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys. So it says that Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Or what it means is Israel was impoverished because of Midian. They couldn't gain any wealth. Anything they tried to gather was taken from them. And so then the people cried out to the Lord because of their oppression. And then God does raise up a judge to deliver them. But the calling of Gideon to save Israel is a much longer story than most. Often it just says God raises up a judge and gives a name. But for Gideon, at first it begins not with God immediately raising up this deliverer, but God sending a prophet to the people of Israel. So the prophet first goes to the people of Israel and gives a survey of Yahweh's past actions on behalf of Israel. Yahweh is their God. He, he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He drove out the Canaanites and gave them land. But although he did this, the people still sinned. Although Yahweh had a special relationship with Israel by his sovereign grace, they still disobeyed him. They still rejected him. So the prophet also declares judgment upon them. Then the scene changes in verse 11. And an angel of the Lord, or an angel of Yahweh, is sent to Gideon. And the angel tells Gideon that the Lord is with him and calls him a mighty man of valor. And, and so we get our first glimpse of Gideon here in this interaction with the angel. In verse 13, he responds. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the angel of the Lord approaches Gideon, tells him the Lord is with him, calls him a mighty man of valor, and Gideon's response is pretty much, well, it doesn't really look like he's with us now, does it? Not really the response of a great man of faith. Then it says, Yahweh speaks directly to Gideon. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So God is saying that this might of yours, not that Gideon is mighty in himself, but that he is being sent by Yahweh. Gideon's ability to save Israel from the hand of Midian lies in the strength of the one who is sending him. The creator of all things, the sovereign God of the universe, has chosen Gideon to send him to deliver his people from the Midianites. But Gideon remains in his earthly perspective. He says, how can I save Israel? First of all, I'm from Manasseh. We're the weakest tribe in Israel. And second of all, I'm the weakest one in my father's house. And so then Yahweh says to him in verse 16, but I will be with you. You shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so there is this struggle here for Gideon between an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. And this struggle happens for us as well. It can be a constant struggle. 
It's hard not to think of things from an earthly perspective. It's the world we live in. It's the world we operate in. But when we get too focused on our own strengths and weaknesses and talents and abilities, we can lose sight of the greatness of God and what he can do. When we focus on ourselves primarily, as Gideon is doing, we can lose sight of God's mission and our purpose for his glory and for the glory of his kingdom. And so Gideon, a courageous man of faith that he is, still isn't convinced. Even with Yahweh telling him himself he's going to defeat the Midianites, Gideon now asks for a sign. He says, please don't depart till I bring out a present. And so the angel agrees to stay. Gideon then goes into his house, prepares a young goat and unleavened cake, and, and then takes the meat and the cake and the broth and presents them to the angel of God. And the angel tells him to put the meat and the cakes on a rock and pour the broth on them. So when Gideon does this, the angel touches the meat and the cakes with the tip of a staff, and then fire comes up and consumes everything, and then the angel just disappears. So now Gideon says he knows that this was the angel of Yahweh. In verse 22 he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, face to face. Then the Lord responds to Gideon, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and calls it, The Lord is Peace. So then, later that night, God tells Gideon to go down and tear down the pagan altar of Baal and to build an altar to the Lord in its place and make a sacrificial offering to the Lord on this altar. So Gideon gathers some men and they obediently do what God has commanded. But out of fear of a reaction of the people, they did it at night. Now, mind you, this was in Israel. This altar, they're scared that the people of Israel were going to respond negatively for tearing down an altar of Baal. And so the next morning, they were right. The men of the town come out and notice that the altar of Baal was destroyed and that there was an animal sacrifice made on a new altar that was built. And so they start questioning, who did this? And they went around asking people, and someone tells them, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this. And so then the men find Gideon's father, Joash, and they say to him in verse 30, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So then in the next verse, Gideon's father responds to them. He says, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. So then it says that Gideon's name is now called Jerubal, which means let Baal contend against him. So we'll see throughout this, now they're going to refer to him as Jerubal. And it's because he broke down the altar of Baal. So then this army forms the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, and they join together and they cross the Jordan and encamp there, ready for battle. So then in verse 34 we read, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Bezerites, which were people from Manasseh, from Gideon's tribe, were called out to follow him. Then he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh. So he starts with Manasseh, and then they too were called to follow him. And then he goes to the bordering tribes to the north. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went out to meet him. So Gideon's gather, gathering the local men of Israel to fight. 
And so they, they gather together, but he still lacks confidence and faith. Gideon still doesn't fully trust in the God and his word yet. After all of this, Gideon now demands another sign. And he wants a sign that God will save Israel by the hand of Gideon as he promised. And so Gideon says to the Lord, I will lay a fleece on the ground, and if there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you will keep your promises and save Israel by my hand. And so Gideon's not only demanding a sign, he's actually dictating to God the nature of the sign as well. But God faithfully does this. Gideon wakes up the next day and the fleece was soaked with dew, enough that he could wring it out into a bowl and fill up a whole bowl. And the ground was completely dry, as he said. And so even though Gideon lacks faith in trusting God, God doesn't give up on him. God faithfully uses unfaithful Gideon to deliver his people. And that's the first reason this morning why we can always trust in God and his word, because God uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to think of just the right words to say or the right actions, right programs. We'll all have times of doubt and sin. We'll all have times of unfaithfulness. But God will still accomplish his purposes through us. God's will and his purposes are unstoppable. He uses the suffering, the weak, the shamed, the vulnerable. God's power is beyond our understanding. God can even miraculously work evil human intentions for good. And we see this in a couple places in the Bible. Considering the story of Joseph in Genesis, his brothers sell him to slavery in Egypt. He's unjustly thrown in prison in Egypt while he's there. Then Joseph eventually rises to prominence. He becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. Then Joseph saves Egypt and the entire region from famine. And then he becomes in charge of the food stores there while this famine's happening. And so then Joseph's brothers, who sold him into slavery many years before, are starving because of the famine. They have to go to Egypt, and they're sent to Joseph. Then Joseph reveals who he is to them. He's the long-lost brother that they sold into slavery many years ago, and he says this. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was able to use evil intentions of Joseph's brothers for his own good purposes to save people, to save his own people and the entire region. It was a blessing to the nations. God uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. Our shortcomings do not thwart the will of God. And so back to Gideon, he wanted yet another sign. In, in verse 39 it says, Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. So first I want to note that this is not at all a blueprint for how we should treat God. Gideon... <laughs> He's treating God as the pagans did their gods. They, they had this deity testing, and they would test their gods to see if they were real. But the Lord is patient and long-suffering. Yahweh is committed to his people and his covenant with them, and he has chosen to deliver them 
from the hand of Midian through Gideon. And so he will do this. Then in chapter 7, verse 1, where we did our reading, we see that Gideon and all the men he had gathered got up early and they encamped by the spring of Harith. And this is actually opposite where the Midianites were, located on the north side of the Harith Valley. So they're ready for battle. But now God has a test of his own. He not only wants to deliver his people from the hand of Midian, he wants to make sure that they don't give themselves credit for it. He wants them to know in their hearts that salvation is only from the Lord. And that's our second reason why we can trust in God and his words, because he is glorified in everything he does. We know he will fulfill his purposes because he will be glorified. In chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So God is glorified in everything that he does. And his glory will remain. It will never dwindle. It will never flame out. And so if God will be glorified and accomplishes accomplishing his purposes, we know they will be accomplished. We know we can always trust in what he has promised. So if Gideon already was nervous and lacked faith before, his faith is about to be seriously tested. God looked at Gideon's army about to go to battle and said there are too many people, the complete opposite of what we would think if we were about to go he says, we're not going to do it this way. I don't want the people of Israel boasting about how great they are, that they saved themselves. God wants his people boasting about how great their God is. So God tells Gideon to announce to his camp in verse 3, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So there were 32,000 men at this point. 22,000 of them left at that moment leaving just 10,000 men. So I don't know about you, but if I was fearful and uncertain going into a battle, if two-thirds of the army left, I wouldn't, it wouldn't help much. Now, I'm sure Gideon's picture of when God said he was going to deliver Midian into his hand, he was picturing a massive army overtaking the Midianites in a conventional way, the way normally this would happen. But our expectations, the way we would do things, are often the opposite of the way God does them. God does things in unconventional ways so that he will be glorified, not us. God is shrinking down the number of people with Gideon so Israel doesn't think that they won this battle themselves. And in doing this, he's also pushing Gideon to trust in him. He's working in Gideon's heart to trust in God, to trust that God will fulfill what he has promised to save Israel by his hand, by Gideon's hand. God uses the weak. He uses the unfaithful, but he also works in our hearts to make us faithful. He puts us through tests. He refines us through the trials in life to bring about trust and faith in him. God is glorified in us by working in our unfaithfulness to bring about faith in him. By working through our distrust to bring about trust and so we see God's not done with Gideon. He pushes him to reduce the men even further. God then commands Gideon to take the men down to the water, and he will separate the men with the test. Everyone who laps the water with their tongue will be put in one group. Everyone who kneels down to drink will be put in another group. And so for Gideon, 
Unfortunately, 300 men only lapped the water, and the 10,000 men knelt down. And so God said to Gideon, with the 300 men lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So if it was scary before to go into the battle with 10,000 men, it's down to an almost comical 300 men. And they're going against a full, formidable army with only 300 men. By human standards, this would be suicidal. But God promised to deliver the Midianites into the hand of Gideon. He's now making sure that everyone in Israel knows that this is the case. And at the same time, he's making sure that Gideon and his men fully trust in God to fulfill this promise. God then commands Gideon to go against the camp of Midian. He says, I have given it into your hand. But he gives Gideon this option. Starting in verse 10, he says, But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And so Gideon must have been afraid because he takes this option. He goes down with Pura, his servant, to the camp of the Midianites. And it says this army that they're about to go to war with, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, they were like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without numbers. So it's easy to understand why Gideon would have been afraid. From a human perspective, God has just whittled down his army to 300 men. And now their army they're about to fight are too many to count. It says even their camels were as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. But God is sovereign over everything, and he has promised to make this happen. So when Gideon gets down to the camp of the Midianites, one of the Midianites was telling his friend in a dream, or about a dream. It says, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Then his friend says to him, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. God is sovereign over everything, all human events, even dreams. He plants a dream into the mind of this man for the benefit of Gideon. He also provides a translator. So as soon as Gideon hears this, he worshiped God. And this is what God predicted. When you go down to the camp, you will hear it, and then you, your faith will be strengthened. Then you will be strengthened against them. And so now his trust and his confidence in God has increased, and he goes to his camp and says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And this is the third reason we can always trust in God and his word, because God works in the hearts of his people to bring about trust. We see this in the story of Gideon. Gideon started completely lacking trust, completely lacking faith, but God worked with him to bring it about. Now God has the faithful man he can use. God works in us to trust him. If God uses the unfaithful to accomplish his purposes, he usually first faithfully works in their hearts to trust him. I know in my own life, when I've, I've lacked trust, I, if I've hit a low point, God can bring about my faith and trust in him in a number of ways. I've been a hard worker most of my life. Uh, my Irish Catholic father instilled a good work ethic in me. But moving into ministry, I can rely at times on my own ability, my own hard work, instead of relying on God. 
And God finds ways to humble me and bring me back to him when this is necessary. He also finds ways to encourage me when that's what's needed. God works in the hearts of his people to bring about trust in him. And so Gideon at this point fully trusts at this moment for God to do what he has promised. And so he goes to his men, 300 men, divides them up into three companies, 100 each, and he hands them all trumpets and empty jars with torches inside. And so they're about to go to battle with men with swords, thousands of them, and you have 300 men with a trumpet and an empty jar with a torch. And so it says, he says to them in verse 17, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so Gideon goes to the outskirts of his camp with a hundred of the men. They blow the trumpets, they smash the jars, then the rest of the 300 men do the same. So now they're all standing there holding the torches in their left hand, the trumpets in their right hand, and they shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And when they blow the trumpets, the enemy army runs away. This army that were like locusts in abundance, their camels as the sand on the seashore, they ran from 300 men blowing trumpets. This is because God willed it. God was sovereign over this victory. It reminds us of the way that God brought down the walls of Jericho. It says that the Lord, in this moment, set their swords against each other. So this army, they started attacking each other, and then they all just ran away. And then as they fled, the men of Israel, the tribes of Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, they all started fleeing these men of Midian. So then Midian goes out, or Gideon, sorry, goes out and calls the men of the hill country of Ephraim. And he calls them to capture them and all the way past the Jordan, and they do so. And they kill the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb are their names. And so now they start pursuing the men of Midian, carrying the heads of these two princes across the Jordan. But the men of Ephraim were actually not happy about this. Ephraim was one of the strongest tribes of Israel. So they were insulted that Gideon didn't bring them about out earlier. They complained to Gideon that he didn't bring them along the whole time to fight against Midian. And so Gideon exhibits some diplomatic skills here, and he wisely says that, what they have done in killing the two princes, the, the men of Ephraim, is greater than what he has done. And so he's able to calm them down. But it's noticeable that Gideon doesn't mention in, in, in this conversation with them that God has called them to do this. That God had promised to deliver them and told him how to do it. He, he just uses an earthly perspective. And so now we're going to start seeing Gideon's downslide. And so Gideon and his men go to this uh, two Israelite areas near the Jordan River, uh, Sukkoth and Peniel. And they go there and ask for help, but they, they're rejected out of fear of the Midianites. And so Gideon now threatens to punish them when the Lord has fully handed over the Midianites to him. And that's on his own. God did not command him to do this. These are his own people. So then Gideon then goes and has a second battle with the Midianites, this time 15,000 men. And Gideon captures their two kings, and he throws their whole army into a panic. And then he goes back to those two areas, Succoth and Penuel, and he tortures the men of Succoth, and he kills the men of Penuel, following through on his threat uh, for them not helping him. 
And so these are Israelites, his own people. And so we, we see this power and authority that God gave to Gideon starting to get to his head. It brings out a new side in him. And then things only get worse. He does go back and kill these two Midianite kings first. But then when he gets back to his people, the people want Gideon and his son to rule over them because he saved them from the Midianites. They're clearly, the people are already giving Gideon and his sons the credit, not the Lord. And Gideon responds well at first. He says in chapter 8, verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And so this is the correct theological response. But his actions don't match this response. What Gideon does next shows his descent into sin, and he's leading the people deeper into sin. Gideon asked the people to give him their gold earrings that they gained from the spoils of war. And this included ornaments of the Midianite kings. Crescent ornaments, pendants, purple garments. And so it seems that Gideon, even though he said he didn't want to be their king, he's starting to be seduced by the lures of being a king. He takes all of this and he makes an ephod. It was a special apron that was worn by the high priest. And the people then... He sets it in the town, and the people worship this golden ephod. And this actually alludes back to Exodus 32, when Moses was taking too long up on the mountain, and the people went to Aaron and said, can you make for us gods? Because Moses is taking too long. And then Aaron went around and collected all their gold earrings, and he fashioned a golden calf. Something very similar is happening here. And so what we see here is that, once again, God's people don't trust him. They don't give glory to God for the things he has just done for them. And they go astray. They're breaking his commandments. They're making for themselves idols and worshiping them. And so it actually says that all of Israel whored after this idol. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. And so this harsh language we see throughout Judges, that the people of Israel whored after idols or also prostituted after idols. And so it tells us something about when the people of God serve an idol. Uh, one commentator mentioned how they are, the people of God in the Old Testament were called the bride of Yahweh. They're a married prostitute, as he puts it. So when we, as God's people, come into a relationship in our hearts with something other than God, it uses us. It doesn't really care for us. We become vulnerable to these idols in our hearts and we can become slaves to them. And the book of Judges is a constant reminder of the snare of this. But even with all of this, God still used Gideon. Midian is completely defeated. They no longer oppress Israel. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And then Gideon and so despite God's faithfulness to Gideon and the people of Israel, Gideon turned away from the Lord by leading his people into sin and idolatry. And so now we're seeing this downward spiral of the book of Judges getting worse. The persistent problem of God's people is the wickedness in their hearts. God raising up a human deliverer works for a time, but ultimately that human dies. And the sin of these humans Deliverers, these human leaders, is now starting to make things worse. But God, in his grace, doesn't leave us there. 
He doesn't leave us to his judgment or the consequences of our own sin and our rebellion. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer. The one who came to deliver us from the enemies of sin, death, Satan, and evil, once and for all. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit brings us to new life. He gives us a new heart. He replaces our wicked heart of stone with a new heart to love him and to serve him. And so while we continue to struggle with sin, as long as we live in this broken world, God is bringing us to ultimate glory. So that one day we will be the completely faithful people of God. We will faithfully worship him and glorify him in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. And we can trust that God will bring this about. He has promised to, and he has faithfully sacrificed his only son to make it happen. God has been faithfully working out the redemption of his people and all of creation since the fall of Adam in the garden. And so may we as God's people continue to love, serve, and trust in the Lord. Knowing that he uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. Knowing that he is glorified in everything he does. And knowing that he is working in our hearts to bring about trust in him. Let us pray. Glorious, gracious, and almighty Father, take our hearts into your hand. Our hearts are hardened and we are weak, but simply by the power of your word, we are renewed. Make our souls your captive. Display your power and your goodness by raising us up and bringing our hearts to trust in you. May our faithfulness increase as we know more and more your steadfast love. May we know that your grace abounds in all the blessings of your finished redemption. We know that in Jesus Christ you are with us forever. We will trust in your mercy, we will wait on you, and we will have hope in your word and in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.